welcome to the Red Dove podcast. We are women storytellers and our stories center on Black women, mental health, and activism. I'm Rainy. And I'm Liz. And tonight is a dovetail. We're going to take a look at the life and times of Lorraine Hainsbury. And she was on our shortlist for a while. And one of the reasons is she dovetails very nicely into Ida because Lorraine was born May 19th, 1930 in Chicago. So as we know, Ida passes away in the, in the thirties and it's like 1930 Lorraine is born and she is born into a family that is already considered quote unquote, part of the black elite that we know Ida was super fans of, but also politically active again with the national organizations like the NAACP they her parents Carl Augustus Hainsbury and Nanny Louise Hainsbury uh, were educated successful quote-unquote successful I'd say economically successful black family in Chicago Carl was a successful real estate broker and Nanny Louise was a driving school teacher and ward committee woman so I wonder if I didn't find this, but I wonder if they knew Ida. They must have. They must have ran. Yeah. I feel like Chicago during that time, especially in the black rights activism spectrum, I, I feel like you would have had to come across people. I know. Bonus, like figure it out and report back to us, Dove, yeah. Dove fans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Carl, okay, so he's a real estate broker. He made history uh, when he sued... Chicago for their racial covenants and his case went all the way to Supreme Court and he won so racial covenants and again he's a real estate broker right so he's like he knows what's up they wouldn't sell homes to black people in certain neighborhoods so what Carl does is he buys a home in a white quote-unquote white neighborhood and of course is met with resistance from the city from the first off from the neighbors but then from the city to the point where he sues goes all the way up to the supreme court and um the supreme court overturned the racial covenant in chicago deeming it unconstitutional so lorraine and her family end up moving into this new neighborhood there's an all-white neighborhood i love it, it. was the I washington yeah, sorry, what? No, I just love that so much. You're like, yeah, we don't give a shit. If you don't like us, we're here. We're here to stay. Our money is just as good as yours. So you're going to put up and shut up. How about that? <laughs> just, ugh, I love it. So that's, yeah, so that's where she's coming from. Oh, fun fact, it was, it was the Washington Park subdivision of the South Side of Chicago. So that was 1938. Lorraine, um, she graduates from Betsy Ross Elementary in 1944 and then Englewood High School in 1948. Lorraine goes on to attend the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And this is where, this is where she became politically active. She starts, you know, attending student protests and advocating for Black liberation, in particular women. Lorraine works uh, on the Henry A. Wallace presidential campaign in 1948. And then in 1950, Lorraine decides to leave Madison 
and pursue her career as a writer in New York City. Lorraine attends the new school. We could do a whole episode on the new school, but for now, we'll just leave it there for, yeah, for now. Then in 1951, Lorraine moves to Harlem and she becomes even more heavily involved in the activist struggles and the literary explosion that is going on right now in Harlem, known as the Harlem Renaissance. What? Lorraine, for her first activist struggles, um, she's focusing on fighting against evictions. And then in 1951, Lorraine joins the staff of a Black newspaper called Freedom, which was edited by Louis E. Burnham, published by Paul Robeson, who, if you don't know Paul Robeson, he's also a fantastic musician. It was very popular at this time. And at Freedom, Lorraine works with, callback, W.E.B. Du Bois. Oh, my God. Like chills. Yes. Um, she was like, it was a powerhouse concentrate of some of the biggest authors, musicians, poets. It's kind of like a pod, right? You know what I want to like take note of is I think that one of the most beautiful things and one of the most powerful things about these, this movement is this this understanding and then this, you know, taking over of the literary world and the written word, you know, something that was taken away from Blacks in America for so long, you know, because, you know, the country and, you know, their enslavers knew that that was the, that was the road to freedom, literacy and writing and the word. And so they specifically took that away from Africans and African-Americans in the South and to watch, to see these stories in the Harlem Renaissance where they took something that was taken from them and have exploded it into this powerful movement that changed the entire course of the country. I just think it's like, I mean, maybe it's the English teacher in me, but I'm like, it's so poetic, you know, it's like, it's just amazing. Yeah. It's literally so poetic that they took what was taken from them to, to win. To be like, yeah, you're not going to, you're not going to keep us in the dark anymore. You know, they call it the Harlem Renaissance, but I mean, it really is an enlightenment, enlightening era, you know, like it's the black enlightenment in America, you know, this, I wouldn't call it a dark ages really, because it was kind of self, it wasn't self-inflicted. It was forced upon. And there were still a lot of things going on as much as people could. But I mean, again, to see all of the writing and all of you know, the mastery of words that came forth from a people where it was stolen from and where they weren't allowed to, and to see them take it and be like, I'm not only am I going to take your words, your English words, but I'm going to make them even better. And I'm going to use it against you. Like, <laughs> man, I just well, love it. <laughs> Let's take a little snippet because, oh, my God, and we will make sure that this winds up on our Facebook page. I found a a website that has archived all of the Freedom newspapers. Shut up. Really? Yes. Welcome to my weekend. Oh I my read so much. Yes, it's amazing. We will share that. But I found, I thought that this would be a, a fitting little snippet. Of, of what it would be like to read the paper. I found a cool article that W.E.B. Du Bois published in Freedom. So it kind of gives you a taste and it's perfect 
for the understanding of 1950s, early 1950s, also Cold War. So it's all going to kind of intersect and come together. So this is from Freedom's November 1950 issue. Why are we afraid? Have we been invaded? Has anyone dropped an atom bomb on us? Have we been impoverished or enslaved by foreigners? Is our business failing and our millionaires disappearing? Has the rate of profit gone down? Is our machinery less cunning or our natural resources destroyed by strangers? Is there any sign that the United States of America is victim or can be victim of any foreign power? No. Then of what are we afraid and why are we trying to guard the earth from Pacific to Atlantic and from the North to the South Pole, unless it be from ourselves? We are afraid of an idea. We are tempted by a vision of power which long misled and slaughtered the peoples of Europe and Asia and now insidiously creeps into our own fever-mad heads. And that is imperialism. World rule over the world. Once this was sought by black slavery, then it was made easy by yellow, quote-unquote, coolies, then by, quote, lesser breeds without the law, end quote, who could furnish a white man's burden and let him strut over the world and lord it in Asia and Africa and rule and rule, world without end, forever and forever. That was the vision of the 19th century. The fever of imperialism caught the United States as the 19th century died and we choked a few islands out of dying Spain. But these were but small change which whetted our appetite. And then he goes on with history and he's talking about now what's going on with the Cold War and Russia. That is the problem which faces the world and Russia was not the first to pose it nor will she be the last to ask and demand answer the 19th century said that this situation was inevitable and must always remain because of the natural inferiority of most men the 20th century knows better it says that there is enough food for all that clothes and shelter for all can be provided that most disease is preventable and that the overwhelming mass of human beings can be educated, that intelligence, health, and decent comfort are not only possible, but should be demanded by all men, planned by all states, and made increasingly effective by all voters in each election. I never thought I would live to see the day that free speech and freedom of opinion would be so throttled in the United States as it is today. Today, in the free country, no man can be sure of earning a living, of escaping slander and personal violence, or even of keeping out of jail, unless publicly and repeatedly he proclaims that he hates Russia, that he opposes socialism and communism, that he supports wholeheartedly the war in Korea, that he is ready to spend any amount of the nation's resources for further war. Brilliant. The Freedom newspaper, it's described as a black pan-Africanist newspaper. And that's a taste of what you could be reading in there. And isn't it fascinating? It's the same shit today. Not much has changed. I mean, and I think that is so prolific of the type of writing that was happening 
from, you know, the black culture at that time that it is timeless because it is a tale as old as time. And they, you know, have summarized it and explained it so eloquently. And we as a country have never come to terms or never understood or never looked at these issues head on. And so we keep, we keep replaying these things that all of these greats have been saying since Frederick Douglass, since, you know, way back when, you know, it's like, yeah, we keep saying it because it keeps happening. And this country has not learned its lesson. This country has not gotten better. And the whole time, the FBI, the now formed FBI is doing what they did to Ida B. Wells before they were called the FBI. And that's tracking um, black activists and calling them communists and socialists and that they hate uh, they hate the country. So that was also, I think, part of what W.E.B. Du Bois was referring to. But it's the same shit we hear today. Wait, um, are you trying to tell me <laughs> that branches of the federal law enforcement are <laughs> using dishonest tactics to shut up social justice and civil rights activism by trying to mislabel mm-hmm. black people as enemies of the state rather than looking at what their list saying is, is that what you're trying to tell me? I know. Shocking. Flabbergasted. I am <laughs> flabbergasted. It's the same shit we're hearing about CRT mm-hmm. that it's, it's Marxist, it's anti-communist, it's anti this, it's anti that same fucking playbook. And this is 1951. I love, I just love the fact that anything that makes them uncomfortable, they just put an ist or ism at the end of it. Like you, it's socialist, it's communist, it's Marxist. It's like, these people are saying things and I'm, I'm positive none of them actually know what these terms mean. No, because they just, they open up their filing cabinet and they pu- pull out the same playbook that they've been using for a hundred years and they just update the names. Right, and, and they- fear-mongering. It's, absolutely, it, it's fear-mongering. It's, it's calling to- white terror of black dominance when that's not what's happening right it's not we're here to, you know it, it's not we're here to take over you know was it um who was that lady who did that great thing on the monopoly board after the george floyd murders kimberly, kimberly jones yeah you when she had that great line when she's like you know you guys are lucky that all we want is equality and not fucking revenge like and that's they operate like that's what we're yeah. saying. Like we we want revenge. And it's like we've never said that, but you must feel some sort of internal guilt because you know that we are due revenge too. But that's not what we're here for. We're here for better. And you know, they they operate in these things like these defensive sort of mechanisms to, you know, defensive against other American citizens. And that's the thing. They they try to make us seem like we're not American, like we're not the same, like we are these enemies that are trying to destroy the fabric of this great country when we're like, yeah, or how about we make this country actually great? Because it's never been great. So over 300 year old grievance. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading something similar to what you just said, and I forget the author's name. It's one of our source materials, so we'll say it at the end or put it on Facebook. But their argument was they saw the civil rights as giving minor concessions to the black movement. But as soon as it became about economics, that's when the government labeled them 
I'm saying terrorists, but at the time it was calling them communists, Cold War. That's what we're in right now. So it's like, pay attention to what you hear uh, critics of CRT or black leaders and, and ask yourself, is it the same language that was rolled out in the late 1940s, 1950s? thousand percent. It is. 100% is because, you know, like you said, it's, it's, it's concessions, it's tolerance. Oh, we'll give them a little bit. So they'll shut up. But then when it becomes too much, or when you start getting money involved, Mm. that's where it's a problem. Wait, wait, what do you mean you want to up, uproot the system that keeps me in a better position than you financially and socioeconomically? No, Never mind. Like we were okay with like the same drinking fountains, but I mean, now you want to live in my neighborhoods and you want equal pay. Okay. Now that's too much. No, thank you. <laughs> so that's who Lorraine joins. That's um, she becomes their staff. She started out as a subscription clerk, receptionist, typist, editorial assistant. Then she begins writing news articles and editorials of her own. And Red Dove listeners, we may have found her first publication in the Freedom Magazine. Yes, if I can find it. Okay, this is 1950-1951 Freedom Newspaper article by Lorraine Hainsbury called Negroes Cast in Same Old Roles in TV Shows. For years, Negroes have been subjected to the shrill or lazy yuck-yucking dialect voices of the radio stereotypes. These, quote, characters, unquote, are intended to give the nation and the world a distorted and degrading image of the American Negro. And in spite of the constant protest against these disgusting shows, they have stubbornly persisted in radio. Now, with their appearance on the nation's TV screens, they threaten to set American culture back at least 20 years. And she goes on from there. But I mean, oh, my God. Right. And she was described as uh, ahead of her time when it comes to civil rights when it, and, and when it comes to LGBTQ plus rights. She was um, we'll get to it. But she was a she was a lesbian. But this is what she would write about. And it doesn't it stay up to the test of time horrendously i mean look at this huge kind of artistic renaissance we've gone through over the last 10 years in movie and media and television now with african americans you know moving away from that black uh, exploitation that we talked about in the 70s you know and and moving away from the scary black man who's it you know here to you know take your white daughters or the promiscuous black woman or you know the the mammy type to show such a huge array of what african americans are and how we are represented and you know that we are not villains you know like moonlight precious and you know the black panther having people who look like us behind the scenes directing these and saying this is actually what black experiences or are like it's not white people coming in and writing it out like I think that you all live in the hood and everybody is a pimp and Mm. you know like yeah I mean that's the same argument that we've had and now you see black protagonists who have love stories between two black people which you did you know we we haven't seen in a long time you know it wasn't showcased 
in that because, you know, there was this myth that white audience didn't want to see stories about mainly African-Americans. And that has shown that that has not been the case at all. They've just never been given the opportunity to see those stories. And, you know, again, I mean, look at this renaissance of Black excellence we're seeing happening right here, right now. Black TV shows, Black actors, Black movies. It's been absolutely amazing. And that's exactly what Lorraine Hansberry was talking about was, you know, pushing African-Americans and these tropes to make white people feel better about their treatment and their subjugation, their dehumanization, because they are able to look at, they're all like this when we are just as multifaceted as any white person. It's like access and the point of view, like that was the point of view, the lens for which to see from white racists eyes that's how either they saw black americans or how they wanted the world to see black americans or both also it's also very foreshadowing for for what's about to come from ms lorraine but yeah i I would describe this also like a pod like she met nina simone that was her friend fun fact lorraine is nina simone's daughter named lisa she is her godmother Didn't Nina Simone write a song about Lorraine? You are spoiling the ending. Sorry. No, screw it. Let's go there. Towards the end of Lorraine's life, she she wrote a play. It's an autobiography. And Lorraine calls, uh, titles the play to be young, gifted, and black. Yeah. (laughs) Like, yes. So think of like a pod. This is clearly an artistic slash activist pod and they're all I mean so as Lorraine starts writing articles people are writing articles but they're also doing plays this is how she starts her playwriting career she wrote a or co-wrote a play and then she went on to a festival where she she worked with Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, Douglas Turner Ward, and John O'Killens. Get yourself a pod. We tell you that every week, but do it. 1953, June 20th, to be exact. Lorraine marries Robert Nemiroff, who was a Jewish publisher, songwriter, and political activist. Robert is white, and Malcolm X publicly kind of made some disparaging or just very critical of the fact that Lorraine married uh, a white person. Again, Lorraine... They'd call her the young Ida B because she clapped back at uh, at Malcolm X. And then he later apologized. Girl, get it. I mean, right. And I think that there's something to be said about, you know, even within the black rights movement, even, you know, within and the gender dynamics and the sexism within the movement and, you know, how black women are expected to behave and are expected to do things and, you know, having to even put even, you know, sometimes black men like, wait, no, 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 no. I mean, you know, we saw Ida B. Wells do that right with mm-hmm. Booker T. Washington, like, first off, you, you're going to get that out of here. You're not going to subjugate me any more than I'm going to let white people subjugate me because of my sex. You're not going to do that. And, you know, and I love that powerful, like, I'm going to do exactly how I'm going to do. And you're not going to tell me what is proper 
for a woman, just like we are not going to allow them to tell us what is proper for being black in America. Like you can't tell a black person how to be black in this country if you don't have that experience. And you are not going to tell me how to be a woman because you don't have that experience. Malcolm X apologized. Fun fact, Malcolm X at that at this point, this was when, you know, he had death threats against him. He, he wasn't living in America. Fun fact, he comes back secretly to attend Lorraine's funeral. Oh. Yeah, so they were buddies. But And that's what I'm saying. She is like buddies and like in these circles with people that today, 2021, we look back at as pioneers, leaders, the greats. That's who she's hanging with right now. And let's get into it for a bit. Robert is Lorraine's beard by all intents of purposes. Lorraine was a closeted lesbian. Um, closeted is her term. She uh, described it as she was not out and proud. And Robert was uh, aware of this and was perfectly happy with the situation. We didn't get into him very much, but just like, let's throw it out there and, and talk about it for a minute. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, allyship, right? Allyship for the different intersections of her life, right? Like he's being that ally, that person that she needs because she couldn't do things on her own in that time period. Not saying that she wasn't capable, but it wasn't safe for her to be out. You know, it wasn't safe for anybody to be out during that time, but to be a black woman and out was especially especially dangerous. So him utilizing his power and his respect as a white man. And I think he was well off, or I don't know if he was wealthy, but I mean, I think he was financially okay, you know, to use that to protect her and to, you know, kind of be this person who she can lean on and, and, you know, give her the room and the space to be who she is and who she loves in, in private but still offering her that safety. I mean, that again is allyship, right? He was using his whiteness, not as a barrier, but as a way to help open doors for her and then allow, and then have her step through him herself. I think that that speaks highly of him during a time where that was a very, you know, with, with communism accusations running all over the place and opposition of the civil rights movement was a lot more violent than it is today, like openly violent. And he was like, yes, I'm going to do this. And this is my way of activism. I think that that speaks highly of him. Definitely. Oh, fun fact, 1963, she and her husband divorce. After Lorraine's death, he donates all of her works to like, it's not the Library of Congress, but a national archive so that it would be preserved. Da, 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 da. 1958 a raisin in the sun premieres on broadway this was written by lorraine fun fact she's the first african-american woman to have a play on broadway and the quote is from a langston hughes poem who's also of course her buddy oh i see you i see you there yeah it, yes it came from Langston Hughes is my favorite poet of all time. It came from one of his most famous poems of all time called Harlem, which he wrote in uh, 1951. Can I read it? It's a short poem. Please. Yes. Okay. So it's called Harlem. 
What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? One of the most beautiful things about this poem is, is it's about the black experience. That dream is the black experience. And he never goes into detail about what exactly it is. It's any sort of dream for the black experience, right? And what happens when you keep telling people to wait? What happens when you keep telling a people it's not your turn? Wait, 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 which is, you know, leans nicely even to Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail when, you know, he is talking to white clergymen who are telling him, you know, you're, you're being a little bit much, you need to calm down. And he was like, you know, it's easy for you to say, because your life is not on the line to keep asking us to wait for our rights, to wait for our equality. It's a cruel thing. And, you know, Langston Hughes wrote about that years before about, this African-American dream of equality, of being equal, of, of having this American dream that is promised to everybody in this land, but then you get here and you're like, oh, it's actually a dream for certain people. And what happens when you hold on to this dream and nothing ever comes to it? What happens when, you know, the world keeps telling you it's not your time, wait, 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 you know? And he talks about, you know, he has these visceral, um, these visceral descriptions of that, you know, like stinking like rotten meat and you can almost feel and taste and smell these really unpleasant things. And that's what happens to, you know, people when you tell them you're not equal yet and I'm going to show you what it could be like for other people. And you have to sit by and watch like a raisin in the sun shriveling up and drying up like this, this robust, you know, a raisin is a grape, right? You know, a grape is robust and juicy, but if left out in the sun too long, it dries up. It it, it gets brown and, and wrinkly and it is not what it used to be. It's not vibrant anymore because everything was taken away from it, waiting and waiting and waiting. And this is what's going on right now in Harlem during the 1950s. All these all these great luminaries of, of that we know now today of literature, they're all hanging out together. And inspiring each other. It's very powerful. Absolutely. The plot of Lorraine's play is very similar to her father's fight with the housing. So it kind of all comes back. Also, let's go back a second to Lorraine's first article for Freedom, where she's critiquing the stereotype of Black characters. So it's sort of the blending of the two for A Raisin in the Sun. It's extremely powerful, great play. But yeah, this was her vision of Black characters in the arts, something completely different from what she had been describing in that newspaper. But the plot, yeah, it's about a family that moves to a neighborhood that was racially segregated and then and that's the the main characters is the family essentially right they're waiting on life insurance payment from the father who dies so you know again black men and you know their worth and you know kind of having to profit off of their leader you know their patriarch dying and then 
this, these get rich schemes, because again, it's, you see this, this dream, you know, they decide to move into a white neighborhood because it's cheaper than the black neighborhoods, which were in poorer areas, which, you know, again, making home ownership so very difficult at that time period. You see a lot of different characters and a lot of different ways of understanding your dreams. You know, like one of the daughters, she has two suitors, you know, two very different suitors. One man who is very much like assimilate, assimilate to white culture. And another man who is from Africa, like embrace your beauty, embrace who you are as a black woman, you know, stop straightening your hair, you're mutilating yourself, you know? So those type of dreams, right? The dream of being able to be your full authentic self and not have to assimilate, which I think uh, spoke a little bit to, you know, Lorraine's closeted lesbianism. Do I assimilate and pretend like I am this way or do I embrace who I am naturally? And, you know, being with a man, being with two different men who have two different ideas of those things, those dreams, the dreams of owning a house, the brother, or I believe the brother, I forgot his name. I think his name is Walter. These get rich schemes, you know, and wanting to buy an alcohol, uh, a liquor store and, and losing all of the family's money in that, you know, and, and then watching that they tried so hard and they just got there and then no. You know, and and then um, I won't spoil the play for any of you. You guys should definitely watch it, but um, or read it. But I mean, yeah, the whole play is just a, again about what happens when you take these dreams that people have and it dries up. You know, like you had this robust dream that they had, and they had this money that they got, and they were finally able to do something with it. But because of racism, because of redlining, because of all of these obstacles that were put in front of them, their dream never was able to, their, their dream wasn't able to be realized. And instead it dried up like a raisin in the sun. Boom. Why don't we back it up a smidge? Yes. 10 years okay. before a raisin in the sun. Same story this time. Let's talk about what those motherfuckers at the FBI were doing. Yes, just like they did to Ida. Now they have a new name, the FBI. They opened up a file on Lorraine in 1948. Um, That was the year, if you remember, Lorraine worked on the Henry A. Wallace presidential campaign, which is what got the Bureau interested in her. Um, They were convinced that it was a she was communist she was part of the communist party also convinced like communist party's enemies of the state so we deep dive but you know it's just sort of it's playing on people's fears and creating enemies that are they really enemies so the next 48 48 she was born in 19 and she was born in 1930 so they opened a file up on an 18 year old girl you got it. Hey, she's helping Henry Wallace, enemy of the state. Let's open up a file. Wow. must be nice to not have anything important to do. Jesus. <laughs> well, good thing they don't have anything like white supremacist terrorists running around. You know, they this is this is what they should be focusing oh, on. That 18 year old. She's going to be the ruin of the entire country. Take her down. And they kind of they're like they need mental health counseling for the next 17 years. FBI monitors Lorraine's movements, friendships, relationships, creative work, and it was committed to its belief that Lorraine was both not only a communist, but a troublemaker. That's in the records. (laughs) How embarrassing. I just think, like, how do you, as an FBI agent, come to your boss and be like, look at all of this stuff I gathered on this young woman. Like, she is a troublemaker. You're like, um... 
So we're not going to talk about the KKK. I mean, they seem to be a mm-hmm. little bit more problematic. No, 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 no. This one. So fucking stupid. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just, that's what they uh, did to Ida. Yeah. And that's what they continue to do to black leaders of today. It's the same. And they call what they call Ida a troublemaker. So that that lands you on enemy list, apparently, for the for the government. But they cause good trouble, like John Lewis said. Good mm. trouble. If you're on the FBI list for causing this kind of trouble, then you are among greats. Flip it and reverse it. Yeah. But then they really got crazy when she got a raisin in the sun published. They went nuts. It prompted the Bureau to try and uncover whether her play was Soviet propaganda. The success of it, they upped their surveillance of Lorraine, but they had to be more sneaky about it to avoid embarrassment. And that reminded me of like one of the Freedom articles is talking about, and then we had to tell the FBI guys that were following us to move aside so we could go into this meeting. Like they were just out there being the worst. But yeah, the, the, the files very committed to this idea that Lorraine had treasonous intentions because she was fighting for the rights of uh, black people. Always keep that in mind. It's the same thing they said about Ida. She's too radical or she's not capable of running a movement. And that makes her radical because she thinks that black people are capable of running a movement. It's the same thing. What? We're capable of running a movement (laughs) that is about us, for us, because it's our lives on the line? She was placed on J. Edgar Hoover's security index. She was labeled an enemy of the state. And the security index was a list of individuals who would be detained during a national security crisis. Let's break that down. What the fuck does that mean? First off, how are you detaining American citizens? And what? how do you define what the hell a national security crisis is? Again, Cold War. So basically, if shit goes down, they're like, we know who to question. But if you're watching them and you don't see anything go down while you're watching them, then what the fuck is the point in watching them if... I- oh, they're going to do something, Rainy. Just oh. you wait. Oh. Just keep watching them. And then we're going to pounce. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they followed her. She went uh, to another conference, another country for a peace conference in Paul Robeson's place because, side note, Robeson's passport was seized for his own radical activism and he was not allowed to travel. So Lorraine goes in his place and reads a statement by Robeson to the conference attendees and a conference intelligence officers decided that this whole group was communist. And when she came back, State Department revoked her passport after that, next several years, there was agents just monitoring and following Lorraine wherever she went. Yeah, like you said, 1956, there was this agent. It must have been his first day. He like did not get it because he actually said, he's like, hey, guys, there's no evidence that she's associated with the Communist Party. And maybe we should take her off the security index. So, yeah, we never heard from him again. And she stays on the list until she dies. Oh, like, it's not funny. It's not funny. But like, <laughs> you oh know God. that's what happened to him. Right? Like, um, guys, did you just ask a question, Wilson? Out. You are either with us or you are against us. Right. And the reason in the sun, when that becomes the hit, then the FBI goes nuts. 
J. Edgar Hoover deployed agents in February of 1959 to, uh, to, to go in and watch the play. This one was in Philadelphia and to make comments and report back. These are some of the comments. This is the FBI's perspective of what they now. You just heard Rainey describe what the play is about. So, but this is the FBI's version. Oh, get God. ready. <laughs> I, <laughs> <that> really... <laughs> I, I can't tell you how excited I am to hear what they have to say about what this play is about. So, we heard from a Black English teacher about what it's about. So, yes, please regale us with what the FBI said it was about. And this is perfect, shows you the mood during the Cold War and how, like, if you're not for racist capitalism, you're an enemy. They uh, described the raisin in the sun. It was heavily dangerous. It was focused on, quote, Negro aspirations and the problems at advancing themselves and various attempts at finding solutions. Okay, so far, kind of similar what we heard. They described the mother. Uh, she was described as a firm-minded, dominating matriarch. Who I'm sure they said that. It was like, that's an insult to me. I'm like, all right, all right. <laughs> but, <laughs> this is what they put in the notes. Who, without asking family members, purchased a home in a white neighborhood. I think that part was like underlined. They, she didn't even ask for permission. Can you believe it? The audacity. And it is the character of the daughter where the agent recognized propaganda messages. Oh, you mean like going back to your natural hairstyle and getting with an African, uh, a Nigerian man and being like, oh, you are perfect the way you are and don't assimilate into white culture. Be proud of being black. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, they it was for them. It was all about that African suitor. They described the suitor as devoted to Nigerian independence and accepting of, quote, evil things to achieve it. And the agent notes that by the end of the play, it, quote, appears that this has become her goal and her, the daughter. Finally, the last propaganda piece was that the only white character who plausibly explained why his neighborhood did not want them to move in was treated as insulting and the family rejected his offer. Kind of similar to what we're going. <laughs> kind of similar to what we're seeing today, right? It's like CRT. It's like, oh, this is an attack on white people. Like the centering and like white people, we must be the heroes of the story, or anything else. You are an enemy of America. Apparently, the agent described the daughter's character as an atheist. Now, describe the daughter's character. These were all insults. Atheist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist agitator whose character regurgitated communist propaganda. That's our government. I love it. We're so great. (laughs) God bless America. And she described that uh, Lorraine's FBI file is substantial and the Bureau's detailed surveillance was committed to surveillance of activists like Lorraine revealed the Cold War state saw the Black freedom struggle as a threat. The contemporary FBI continues to commit resources to activists, confirms that social justice remains a threat to those in power. Black Lives Matter. Today, at a time of increased white supremacist violence, Oath Keepers, the Bureau remains committed to its long history of targeting Black activists. 
efforts to reform have proven resistant to the agency's racism, which affects both domestic and foreign policy. Um, and just like right there alone, like Lorraine's file is a perfect case study of how the FBI, these are my words, like criminalized peace and social justice advocacy, a long history of the FBI's abuse of their power. Still going on today. Lorraine unfortunately dies way too young. She dies in her mid-30s, 34, pancreatic cancer in 1965. So young. And what would uh, the lexicon look like if she had lived another 34 years? Like what works of art would we still have? But that's okay because Raising the Sun was amazing. But yeah, that is the badass Lorraine Hansberry. And if you haven't read the play you should go read it or go watch it yes if you like this podcast give us five stars leave us a review on apple Podcasts. it really helps the show and until next time